The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. History has a habit of repeating itself, but in ways that one might not expect. A sense of deja vu might only get you so far until you find yourself lost in a world both familiar and alien. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and stuffed bird, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's presentation is the 1998 remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Anne Hesch, Vince Vaughn, Hugo Mortensen, Julianne Moore, and William H. Macy. My guest is scriptwriter Paul Morris, and you join us in a quiet cabin of a long-forgotten establishment, far from the interstate. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? Uh, very well, yes. Yeah. Bearing up, mustn't grumble, can't complain. Good, good. Glad to hear it. So, what can you tell me about Psycho? Ah, well... It is uh, one of the most celebrated of, of cinematic auteur Alfred Hitchcock's films. Um, uh, I believe he had some trouble getting anyone interested in it, so he had to make it on a very, very low budget with a, uh, a TV f- crew rather than his normal film crew. Um, it, is it an urban myth that he had to do it in black and white because of the budget rather than because, as an artistic choice? I forget. I I believe that I believe that was true because Universal was unwilling to spend too much money on it, but at the same time very keen to keep Hitchcock sweet. They um, uh, they allowed him to use the crew from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV right. series and black and white as well as well as well as cutting on the budget. Black and white meant that they could show lots of yeah. blood <laughs> um, because showing that red would have yes. been. I mean, only a couple of years earlier, you had uh, the Curse of Frankenstein showing Technicolor red blood and getting into a lot of trouble. Mm. Yes, I mean, yes, they couldn't have got away with it, and it's arguably would have been less effective, especially in 1960 when the red would have been rather too ketchup-y to and possibly produced the wrong reaction in the audience. But if you know, if anyone ever made, remade the film in color, we could contrast and compare and see see what was the more effective. Well, as uh, as has been covered elsewhere, um, Psycho sort of spawned this very unlikely franchise. <laughs> um, it took more than 20 years in the death of Alfred Hitchcock to come about, but in 1980, uh, 1983, I think we had Psycho 2, mm-hmm. um, directed by Richard Franklin, the Australian filmmaker. Um, Anthony Perkins came back. Um, Vera Miles came back. And the film is actually pretty good i'm glad you think so yeah i i think so i've always been uh, i've always been very fond of it i was telling mrs it's, morris it, that last night and she did she couldn't believe me <laughs> it's it's a surprisingly clever development of the of the the norman bates story and developing the relationships between the surviving characters i thought i was i was rather impressed by it psycho 3 in 1986 directed by perkins himself is 
very weird. It looks like uh, sometimes like a Sam Raimi movie. There's lots of uh, red and green lighting. It's very stylized and over the top. It starts with a black screen and someone yelling, there is no God. <laughs> it's a very odd film. And uh, But also compared to the ingenuity of the first two, it seems rather more inspired by 80s slasher films than... It's not really got any great yeah. twists. Well, I mean, it has it has an attempt at a twist, but it's one twist too far, I think. It it feels because it came out the same year as the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. It feels very like that. It's all everything is too much. But unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, it isn't completely unwatchable and the worst film I've ever seen. Um, and then in 1991, Psycho Four: The Beginning which ignores Psycho 2 and 3, and has Norman now living in suburbia, apparently healthy and engaged, but his wife is pregnant and he phones into a call-in show because he's scared that his madness is going to be passed on to the next generation. And so the film switches between this lengthy, almost theatrical sequence of Norman phoning into this talk show hosted by CCH Pounder and flashbacks to young Norman and uh, his mother leading up to the original murder, with them played by Henry Thomas from E.T. <laughs> and Olivia Hussey. So it's a surprisingly strong cast for a TV movie. Um, there were vague plans for a fifth Psycho, but sadly Anthony Perkins passed away. He was already very ill during the making of Psycho 4. Um, around this time there was also a TV movie called Bates Motel, which was going to be spun off into a series about the people passing through the hotel now that it was under new management. That didn't go anywhere. And more recently, we've had the Bates Motel full-fledged TV series, which ran for five seasons and chronicled the whole story of Norman and his family um, with um, uh, Freddie Highmore from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as Norman and uh, Vera Farmiga as uh, his mother. And in the final season, Rihanna guest stars as Marion Crane. <laughs> Does she really? Yeah, and uh, it it takes great liberties with the original material, but it's it ran for fifty episodes, so you kind of had to, and it does come to a proper definitive end. But in the midst of all of this, in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was a run of remakes of classic horror movies, mm. and I'm sure we can name them all very easily. All the all the great classic horror movies of the sixties and seventies were being remade. Uh, the Hitcher, The Fog, um, Night of the Living Dead was remade in 1990 for copyright reasons. All these things were being uh, turned over again. And it was really only a matter of time until someone decided that Psycho was a good idea for a remake. But Gus Van Sant got in there first. And the result was... The remake of Psycho released in late 1998, directed by Gus Van Sant, and although not a shot-for-shot copy, it very closely follows the original movie, uses the same script without really anything in the way of deviations, and the same plot, and is, it's a cover version, almost, rather than a remake. Mm. How, how uh, close to being shot-for-shot shot is it? Because in my head I've always assumed it was was that was it publicized as such 
<clears throat> it was publicised as, as such, but I've I've looked at this in detail because I've had a copy of the remake. I've got a copy of the original on Blu-ray because, of course, I have because I'm me, and obviously I've got a copy of Psycho on Blu-ray. Um, and there's quite a few differences, and there's quite a few um, shot choices and blocking choices that uh, Van Sant has completely invented ah. just to do scenes his own Interesting. way. That they're not wildly um, noticeable, they're not particularly exaggerated, they're just, I can do this differently, I can do this in a more dynamic way. Um, there are some things that he's added that really feel out of step with the original material. <laughs> but there's other stuff that he's done which is just following the template of the original film. I look forward to hearing what some of those are, because I didn't... The only things I spotted were where he had you know, borrowed... Hitchcock's shot choices and camera movements so closely that they really make you think what, what did this look like in 1998? Well, I know what it looked like because I was there. I saw it at the cinema. Um, so did I. Um, I tried very hard to get friends to come with me because I wanted to get a uh, a, a, a neophyte's perspective mm. on what this looks like to a modern audience. Even at the age of 17, I was familiar with the original. I thought of Psycho as being one of the ur-texts of cinema, and I still do. So I wanted to see, well, if you, if you do it now, what does it look like now? If you approach this with a completely fresh um, attitude, with a completely blank slate, does it work? And the answer seems to be, from the general public, no, of course it bloody doesn't. <laughs> Yes, I don't know about neophytes, but I, I watched it in an almost empty cinema in Maidstone, and the other, and the other, there was a group of young lads on the other side of the room who had clearly been attracted by the title, um, didn't know the original story, and were assuming it was going to be a big slasher epic uh, in the you know classic ages style, and they they grew increasingly bewildered and then bored. So that kind of undercut the experience. So I mean, maybe even that that experience slightly soured me on it. Oh, never thought it was a bad film at all i my one line summary of it for the last 25 years has been yes pretty good but why so watching it again thank you for inviting me to um i've i've enjoyed it quite a lot more the second time van sant later said that his reasoning for remaking psycho was because it, this was inevitable and if he gets to do it first, it means he gets to do it in an interesting way. He's he's jumping before anyone's. It, it, it was like it was jumping before anyone pushes it. So if he can do it in an interesting way as a shot-for-shot shot remake, doing it as like a cover version rather than trying hmm. to modernise it or zhuzh it up too much, then it becomes more of an experimental film. And I I would ref, I would refer to this as not a mainstream film, but a $60 million experimental production. Is this completely unique, the, a remake in this style? Because as you say, normally remakes are done for the purposes of modernisation. People like the original story or the original film. They may even be trying to pay tribute to the original film by assuming that it no longer speaks to modern audiences and that they have to zhuzh it up to get young, pe young people today engaged. And surely the, the two things you would have... you do straight away when you remake a film are to change the script or change the camera work or both largely 
Has anyone ever remade a film and not changed either of those things? I can't think of anything offhand. Um, I do. I mean, the the remake of Night of the Living Dead in 1990 uh, did have George Romero rewriting his own original script. Um, And the result is a film that is superficially, I mean, from scene to scene, very similar. But a lot of the details different. And again, that feels modern. And that production existed really only so that he could actually control the copyright over the name Night of the Living Dead because the original film hadn't been copyrighted. But I, I can't think of anything offhand, to be honest. I mean, Hitchcock even remade one of his own films. He did, directed two versions mm. of The Man Who Knew Too Much, um, one in the UK and one in the US. Uh, aside from adaptations of plays, for example, where you are uh, avoiding changing the original text too much, like various versions of Hamlet, for example, um, I can't think of a production that has been deliberately so faithful to a preceding one. Would it be uh, getting ahead of ourselves to discuss how 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 well this pays off? Because I think, just briefly, the reason he gets away with it is because the original script was so good, like all of Hitchcock's scripts. It's often under under overlooked how good his scripts are because he didn't actually write his own films and people just think about the camera work. But he chose the rest, the best writers, and there is a consistency of style and intelligence. Um, cl- well, this is why I say Psycho is one of the ur-texts of cinema. I think it is an absolutely airtight script. Either version, because I mean, it's not, not as if the, the remake is any different, really, apart from a few word changes and some directorial differences. Um, I thought that you could... You could remake Psycho without even, you know, being that um, faithful to the original. You could set it in the Wild West. You could set it in feudal Japan. Mm-hmm. You could set it in the future. Because it has that, that's the central relationship between the characters is timeless. It's about greed. It's about guilt. It's about vanity. These these things are timeless. You could you could set this at any time and at any place, and it would work. So, it is odd that he chose to set it in exactly the same place, and uh, possibly even fudged the issue of whether it's set in 1960 or 1998, because at times it's hard to tell. It says at the beginning of the film it's 1998. the The little caption at the bottom of the screen giving the date. It also says 1998 underneath, specifically to say, this is the present day. The problem, however, is that the costume designer misunderstood and bought a lot of period clothing. So all the actors are dressed as though it's 1960, even though they're walking around in the late 90s. (laughs) Is that a fact? That's true. Well, I'm I'm glad you told me that before we started, because I shall bear that in mind. That explains... It does explain why everyone, apart from Julianne Moore, is so weirdly dressed. Yeah, okay. Yep, that's exactly what I thought. I was just wondering if it was because <laughs> the props person hadn't received made the same mistake. So Julian Moore gets the, the Walkman and the backpack, which make her instantly seem more modern than the moment she appears. See, I'm, costumes and clothes aren't my strong point. So um, it was uh, Mrs. Morris sat next to me watching it last night who said, why are they all wearing <laughs> 1960s clothes? When is this set, Paul? I'm confused. Right, well, good. Well, the... 
to talk about the the film itself, I mean, as I say, it, it follows the the structure of the original very closely. So we have the original opening titles again in the in the same the same graphics with the the green lines moving across the screen, or the black mm-hmm. and white in the original. The film has the same score as the original, but it's been completely re-orchestrated and re-recorded now in stereo uh, by Danny Elfman. It's extraordinarily faithful, um, isn't it? I was, I, if I hadn't seen the credits and been told that it was, um, or it hadn't been implied that it was re-recorded, I wouldn't have been sure. So that was the main reason they did it, to get it in stereo. Just so that it, it, on a, I suppose on a, the timings are also standards level. It would it would match the because if you know they're shooting mm. on mm. you know high quality film, different from the same stock that they would have used in the sixties, obviously color rather than black and white stock. And so recording uh, the music digitally, as I think they did, would bring everything up to the same technical level of what a nineteen ninety eight audience would expect from a film like this. They would expect that that kind of crisp clear sound and not even with the best one in the world a recording of an orchestra performing 30 years earlier and we pan over the skyline of um, Phoenix Arizona towards a building and I like the in- the inference and it's same from the original film as we're moving towards this building with all these windows there's a story in every one of these windows <laughs> something interesting is happening everywhere yep. But we've chosen this one to move We're in. We're being on. Jimmy Stewart again, aren't we? Yeah. Um, and our first shot is of uh, the fly walking along the windowsill, which then tie- it is an addition by um, Van Sant, but that ties into the very end of the film. Because hmm. one of the very last shots of the film is a fly in close-up as well. Good addition. I didn't spot that, so that's a, that's that's a plus a, that's one. It's a nice little... It's a nice little twist, nice little bit of extra thought. This is like the touring production of Psycho. <laughs> we've had the we've had the we've had the big West End Broadway production. This is the touring right. one. Right, in the provinces. So you've got, with, a um... so you've got a different director who's doing their own little thing, but he's sticking to the script and he's using the same sets and also the same costumes. <laughs> and uh, Sam Loomis and. Uh, Mary and Crane have been meeting for lunch. They've been meeting for sex. Sam is much more country in this. He's much more of a good old boy type. Yep. In the original, he's more straight-laced. He's still married but separated from his wife. And the plan is that he and Marion are going to get married at some point. There's some tension, apparently, between Sam and Marion's sister, Lila, who we meet later on in the movie. Um, and Sam runs a hardware store in Fairvale in California, some distance away, whilst uh, Marion works in a real estate office. And the whole scene is... Um, the, the tone is different. As I said, there's more of a relaxed attitude towards nudity. Marion is much more playful in this, in this version. Marion is now played by Anne Hesch, who I thought was an unusual choice... Because the, in the original, the gimmick, of course, is that Janet Lee was the biggest star in the movie. And she's killed off at the end of the first act. Here, we have Anne Hesch, who is not the biggest star in the movie. <laughs> and might, of the main cast, may have the least impressive career. Because this movie has an amazing mm. cast. I mean, I think back, at the, back in the day, 
I knew her name, but I don't think I'd ever seen anything she's been she'd been in. And twenty four years later, that's still true. I think uh, she's she's done quite a bit of work in television. Uh, she's had you know, quite a few major TV roles. But that summer, she'd been in a, a blockbuster romantic comedy with Harrison Ford, Six Days, Seven Nights. So she was definitely being pushed as a, a new big star. Um, I can't imagine that Psycho had a, a damaging effect because everyone else in this has done so well. You know, we've got Viggo Mortensen and Julianne Moore and um, and Vince Vaughn and William H Macy and Robert Forster yeah. and um, Philip Baker Hall. Do you think it's a problem that uh, they haven't repeated the gimmick of of you putting the biggest star in the in the Marion Crane role, or is it not a problem because everyone knows the twist now? So. If you're, it depends on your attitude with the film. If you're trying to make it as though you're aiming at as a, as a mainstream production for a regular audience, I think you need to try and replicate mm. that, and that's what they were trying to do, because the first choice to play Marion Crane was Nicole Kidman. Ah, well, there you are. Hmm. Who I think would probably have been miscast, but she would definitely have been the biggest star in the movie. Um, there are probably other people around the time who would have been an equally strong fit um, but the, the thinking was yes we have to go on this way and they just they just seemed to luck out with Anne Hesch that she wasn't the right she was aiming she was on the, on the upward trajectory and then about three months after this movie came out that trajectory peaked and then there's just been a sort of gradual flat decline since then rather than carrying on upward as it did for everybody else now with regard to these this scene and these two actors um as you say, um, Vigo is doing a or is doing a rather stronger accent than in the original version of this character, and he's not alone. There are several other people who have stronger, thicker, possibly more accurate accents for the for the region, which I guess is just a sign of the changing times that things are a bit more generic. Hollywood well, uh... in, back in nineteen sixty. Sam is supposed to be from the southwest, so he's from south, uh, southeastern California, the desert area. I'm not aware of there being particularly strong accents around there. Well, okay, you're right. It's not more accurate, is it? I was assuming. I was um, assuming. I mean, it could be that he, you know, he could have moved there from somewhere else, obviously. But I think it's more that he's the t- that Mortensen is the type of actor who's right. So, where's this guy from? What, you know, where did he grow up? What, 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 you know, he will create a whole backstory and base the performance around that. Whereas in the original, John Gavin will say, OK, well, what are the lines and where do I yeah. stand? Yeah, that's what's changed in 38 years. I mean, it does, unfortunately, make it slightly hard to pick up every single word he says. And the other thing I thought in this first scene is that possibly, partly by comparison with his performance, but also in her own right, Anne Hesh is doing quite a, quite a cl- classic performance. It's not very 1998. You could almost, almost believe she'd stepped out of the original. And that's an interesting choice. Yeah, I agree. She's there's there's a clash of styles in this movie because lots of people seem to be bringing their own ideas of what the production's going to be. Yeah. So Anne Hesh thinks that she's doing a full-on recreation of the original. Viggo Mortensen's doing like a um, uh, like a, a, a fringe theatre room over a pub production where it's all mumbly like Sean Harris <laughs> uh, 
Julianne Moore's doing an indie movie. Um, and William H. Macy also thinks he's doing a 60s yes. movie. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's even dressed like it. Which, I mean, as I said, because of the, the costume design. But he's that's maybe the last time I've seen a man in a film wearing a hat with a business suit. Hmm. I think that's that's a that's a big marker of a change in um, uh, attitudes of masculinity. Is when did men stop wearing hats? Because previously the benchmark was uh, Steve Martin in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in 1987. Because he wears the hat all the way through the movie and eventually loses it at the airport when it gets run over by a truck. So the hat is very much part of the whole thing that he's trying to keep himself together with. Mm. Of course, there's one cast member we haven't mentioned, but perhaps we should save Vince Vaughn until we get there because it's more complicated. It's not just a question oh, yeah. of different eras, but uh, the performance he's trying being asked to re- replace was Absolutely. very specific in itself. So Marion goes back to the office Friday afternoon, and her boss has a uh, top-level business client in who's uh, leaving some money in the safe over the weekend to um, buy his daughter a house because she's getting married. And he's a proper Texas oil man type. He's got the hat and he's got the little bolo tie (laughs) and everything. And he's a little bit of a caricature, I thought. (laughs) Um, But another notable actor, Marion's boss, is played by Rance Howard, Ron Howard's father. Ah. And did you notice as Marion was coming back into the office, the two men standing outside the window? Uh, no, no. Well, one of them is Gus Van Sant, and he's talking to a short, fat, bald man wearing a cowboy hat. And that's Alfred Hitchcock, because that was Hitchcock's cameo in the original Good movie, Lord. standing outside the right. office wearing a big cowboy hat. So he hasn't and completely lost any sense of playfulness in his remake. Good. Well, no, the, and the idea is that Van Sant said, this is Hitchcock having a go at me. <laughs> but the amount of money that's being stored over the weekend has changed. In the original film, it was $40,000, now it's $400,000. Right. So change is made to allow for the passage of time. Um, but that's also similar to the amount of money that Sam needs to clear all his debts and to start a new life with Marion. And also Marion's co-worker in the office... Another cameo is Rita Wilson, um, Mrs. Tom Hanks, ah. and a very successful film producer in her own right. In the original film, it was Patricia Hitchcock, the director's right. daughter. Um, and she has a much... very Everything is... It, the office looks like it's from Miami Vice. It's all pastel colours. Everything's very bright. It's very poppy. It's very... Um, it's not timeless because it's. It feels like it's rooted in very sixties, but it's also somehow been transplanted into nineteen ninety eight. It. Um, it's not the last of the locations where you might be forgiven for thinking the easier route would have been to make them dour, drab, um, grayscale to try to mimic the atmosphere of the original. But he hasn't gone down that obvious route. No, it's. It's odd because there a lot of the, there doesn't seem to be a clear through line in the movie of a an overarching aesthetic. 
there's so many different approaches from the actors. So many, you know, we've got different types of costume, we've got different types of setting. There's nothing that gives a consistent world view. And given that this is just supposed to be the southeastern United States in the present day, and just like ordinary towns and ordinary places and an ordinary hotel, it shouldn't be too difficult to make it all feel like it's one continuous world. But it doesn't. Is the palette of the um, the sets and costumes and indeed the, the cinematography in any way an attempt to look like to replicate what it would have looked like if it had been filmed in colour in 1960 do you think? I think there are some similarities I think the the hotel room and the parlour and the Bates house have a very similar tone to them they're both they're, I mean they're all um, not very bright they're a bit sort of dour and oppressive but it doesn't match with the the, the the pastel poppiness of the real estate office and what I what we ought to feel I think is that Marion doesn't fit in with the with the real estate office because that's what she's escaping from that's what she's fighting against but she fits in there perfectly because her clothes and her wallpaper and the wallpaper go together in the original it's you know it's all grey and it's all black and white and grey because it has to be but Marion is is uh, quite a compelling vibrant presence within that environment and stands out and here she doesn't stand out enough Mm. Um, so Marion takes the cash but as she's driving out of town um, she stops at a crosswalk and her boss walks in front of her and catches her eye. Does a little double take. <clears throat> yeah. And carries on walking as though he's not sure what he's just seen. And the lights change and Marion drives off. But as Marion drives, she starts to imagine conversations. Um, she imagines the boss finding the money gone. She imagines uh, the client being furious and you know, he's always going to bring the law down and and all these terrible consequences to what she's done in taking the money. Um, this may sound like a nitpick, but I found the um, the voiceovers in the uh, of the imagined conversations slightly unclear. Uh, slightly unclear mix compared to the original. Is it just because the music's louder, or do, have they added sound effects as well into the mix, and it all becomes a bit muddy? If you can't hear the dialogue properly you're going to tell me it's my then tv regardless of any regardless of it <laughs> regardless of any um artistic choices then it's a bad mix because i know what some of these lines are and i was waiting for them and some of them got a bit lost i don't it's just an observation all right i've got another one here <laughs> it's a tiny unimportant thing but when she first sets off on the road um i, f- I feel like one of the first shots we get it looks like a model shot to me and not a particularly good one uh, rather than a real road I thought I could see little model trees next to a model road was I hallucinating or was that an attempt to mimic the sort of thing well, you might the... have done back in the day well the original doesn't have any model no work. quite <laughs> so, that'll um, be an... so I, th- I think it's just a bit of odd live action photography right. that maybe, maybe with a bit of um, uh, odd depth of field that makes th- there's a way you can shoot with um, I think a very shallow depth of field, oh, a very long depth of field, field yeah. that makes um, 
makes things look small. Yeah. Um, and it's possible that it was done slightly with that in mind to give it a, a sense of phoniness. Or it could just have been a, an odd artistic decision that wound up looking weird and no one picked up on I mean, it. If it had been, it would have been, you've got the wrong decade. You been, you're more aping the 30s or something, aren't you? If <laughs> You can't even be bothered to film yeah. the real road. But then... Um, I mean, the last thing you want in your remake of Psycho is to do establishing shots that make it look like Godzilla's about to turn up. <laughs> well, of course, in the very first shot, um, they subtly improve upon the original special effect, don't they? Because... Hitchcock, with the limits of the technology at the time, couldn't quite make that transition from the crane shot going through the window, whereas here they've, I guess, superimposed the, the internal view there's, onto the external. Uh, yeah, there's a hidden edit there, which uh, was optically beyond what they could do in 1960. Hitchcock's original idea was that it would start with this view of the skyline and then slowly close in on one window and then zoom into the window and then go through the window and into the room. Um, which obviously you can't do physically. Um, you could now do with CGI um, without even, I think, needing, needing to do much in the way of modelling. You could just do it mm. with, with composites and maybe a breakaway. And they'd probably overdo it by actually showing you going through the panes of you know, every atom of the pane of glass as you go through it, because yeah. because you can. I mean, the, just the, the easy way of doing it is just, oh, the window's open. <laughs> but... The, the other thing that the, this podcast has been in development for a very long time. Not, not Cinema Limbo as a whole, but doing an episode on Psycho. Planned to record this nearly a year ago. Um, the original guest who I was going to record with unfortunately had all sorts of issues which we had to, had to keep delaying. And it got put off and put off and put off and put off. And eventually I realised that's probably not going to work. So I... Uh, enlisted your good self mm. and you've been extremely accommodating and I thank you very much for that because I know you're very busy yes, with I, I may things. have contributed to the delay in my own way but yeah <laughs> I'm glad you well, waited well I mean you've been very busy so that's fine um, but my original plan was this was going to be released in time for Christmas because the original film of Psycho is set in the two weeks before Christmas there is almost nothing in the film to indicate this, except for the date caption at the start, which says it's the 11th of December, and that as Marion is driving around Phoenix on her way out of the city, you can see Christmas decorations in the windows. And the reason was that it just happened to be the middle of December when they <laughs> went to Phoenix to shoot all these plate shots. And then when they looked back at them, they thought, ah, Christmas decorations. Uh, oh, we'll just say it's set in the middle of December. Yeah. So the film basically ends a couple of days before Christmas, and there is no mention of it anywhere in the movie. <laughs> they could have given that to the psychiatrist as the last line. After his interminable monologue, he could just tip his hat and say, Merry Christmas, folks. <laughs> End on a cheerful well, note. In the, in, the, in the stage version, that's what he does at the end of the encore. <laughs> I've had an idea of how to do a stage version of Psycho. Mm -hmm. I think it would work very well. You do the shower scene with like a, a pane of translucent glass or plastic, so it's just all in silhouette, and you could just you know, spurt blood up the up the up the the pane of glass. You have uh, someone off the side of the stage doing the voice of mother, and so you can have the two having conversations, and and it could it could work really well. 
That's all right. I'm just making notes. You As you with, were. Don't steal, don't steal my ideas. <laughs> Bad enough when that guy wrote a Doctor Who novel based on the idea that I talked about loudly in the pub. Hang on. I had to think then to see if that was me, but I haven't written a novel yet. So It wasn't good. you. Right. Well, I'll ask you later who that was. It was some other Don't bastard. say it out loud. There are still libel laws in this country, even if it's true. <laughs> um, Marion sleeps in the car overnight and is woken on Saturday morning by a highway patrol officer who is maybe the most menacing mm. police officer ever in a film. Yeah, and um, yeah, the embodiment of Hitchcock's lifelong attempt to show the police the, the, um, the policeman that he's been having nightmares about ever since childhood. He he looms into the car window. There's a big close up close up of his face, dark glasses, so you can't see his eyes. Played by James Remar, another big name guest star. Um, and he's very suspicious about her, but she's able to explain. Oh, oh, you see, I was driving and I fell asleep. Well, you can't sleep here. I'll I'll make sure you get back onto the main road. And he just follows behind her, and eventually overtakes her. But she pulls into uh, the first town over the state line, her plan being to exchange her car. And as she's in the uh, office trying to sort this out quickly as she can, the police car pulls in across the street and the officer gets out and he just folds his arms and leans against the car, watching from a distance. And it's so sinister. And he's not doing anything wrong, really. He's just watching this oddly behaving woman and wondering what's going on. And he never does anything that you wouldn't reasonably expect a police officer to do. It's a really nice bit of writing because, as you say, it feeds into Hitchcock's lifelong terror of the police. No wonder he was always doing films about people being wrongly accused. And here we have Um, somebody who could be rightfully accused but isn't. But he, he but is just. Because... It's almost like he's not there and he's, the policeman is just a manifestation of her guilt. Except he is there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But... Well, it's, it's, well it's, it's a literary I... device, really, yeah. that, that he is a manifestation of her guilt. And, so again, it's, it's, the, it's the powerful man um, following her the same way she imagines that you know, people talking about her. Beh- after she's gone. I'd probably leave out the, the very final shot where he joins the two employees of the uh, of the car showroom because it kind of brings him down to earth, the policeman. I think I'd leave him over the road watching. Well, I like that, that she drives off just as he arrives to talk to them. It's that, that, that razor-thin moment. And just as she's driving off, the, the mechanic says, Wait, wait, stop! Hmm. And she frees the... Yes. Oh, you left your luggage in your other car. Oh, oh, thank you. Quickly gets it and, and peels out of the, the, the car. Throughout this entire section, they don't miss a trick for any way to increase the tension, but none of it's too contrived, is it? It's just because it's so focused on her point perspective. And the thing that's worth noting is that this sequence, of course, is shot on location. There is no way that this could have the original blocking and the original shot design as the original film. So almost all of this is Van Sant's invention Ah. in terms of the direction. He's copying Hitchcock in terms of technique and style, but he's having to invent the shots 
from scratch. Because which is obvious. I mean, he's oh, he's an experienced director, so he knows how to do that. Sorry, what, 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 how is the original shot? Is, you mean it's in it's on it's in the studio? It's 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 well, if it's not in the studio, then at least it's at a different location. Right. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> because they're having to work around hmm. the structures that are there, and there's no way they can do that and have it look the same if the structure's different. So he's shooting in a Hitchcock idiom, but having to think about how Hitchcock would shoot with this different layout, while still adhering to the original script. It might have been interesting to, rather than, I mean, obviously, since the the, the remake, the notion of remaking Psycho came first, um, looking at some of Hitchcock's unproduced films, um, this isn't the first Hitchcock film-ish that the podcast covered because we did Family Plot not too long ago um, but there were several unproduced Hitchcock films late in his career um, Kaleidoscope which was an early version of what became Frenzy was going to be an, an almost experimental 60s style serial killer movie that I think might have been more receptive to Van Sant's more experimental natural filmmaking style than remaking Psycho. What do you think? <laughs> I should look it up. I... There were a few other... Th- I mean, um, after uh, Family Plot, the, the next one he was going to do was going to be called The Short Night. And was about a... Um, it was another spy story about someone, uh, a Russian agent escaping from custody in Britain and fleeing across the, um, the Russian border in Finland. And it was going to be set largely in Finland. And I think Star... Uh, Paul Newman and Walter Matthau. But um, there was never really any chance it was going to get made because Hitchcock was nearly 80, his health was poor, his standing as a commercial filmmaker was quite low. But Universal, because they owed him so much, was quite happy just to you know, carry on writing him checks for development money and keep him on the payroll, because you know, he's Alfred Hitchcock. Of course, you know, he can do whatever he likes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, yes. In a sense, almost any idea would seem a better fit for Van Sant's usual style than constraining yourself like this to, some, to aping somebody else as a tribute band. So I'm still no closer to, to understanding why he did it. But unless, of course, it was simply, as you said, out of respect for the film and trying to make sure that nobody else came along and did it worse. <laughs> yeah, it's like either 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 I do this or Michael Bay comes <laughs> along and produces his version. Right. Well, he, he took a bullet for us. Um, we got to mention that uh, Lila works in a record store. And that's adapted from the original line that she works in a music store. And as... as uh, Marion continues to drive all day across the desert. Um, Hesh's performance gets a bit too broad as she's she's just sitting, driving, listening to the voices in her head, but she's really overacting the imagined responses to 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 all these voices. And in the original, Janet Lee is it's small expressions, it's hand movements, it's not. It doesn't feel so much like she's playing to the back row. Yep, fair point. Um, night falls, as does very heavy rain, and <clears throat> uh, Marianne pulls up at a motel. 
um, rushes into the office. It's absolutely pouring with rain, but there's no one in there. But there's music playing from the house that's up on the hill. And that's another change, because in the original, it was uh, Eroica. It's another sex element. But in the remake, it's a Hank Williams record. And that is actually in the same location that the original motel was built in. That, that the, the new Bates Motel was, is, if not the same building, built on exactly the same site as the original. And the house is just a frontage built immediately in front of the actual Bates house. Hang on. <laughs> right, so, uh, rewind. Where is this location? Universal Studios back right. Yes. I, I went to... Um, I was in America a couple of years ago and I went on the Universal Studios tour and they tried to palm me off with the idea that the, the mock-up they had of the Bates Motel and the house is the one from the films and... I wasn't. I wasn't it seeing is. any of that. I wasn't it is, it is. That is the actual oh, house. It's the actual rubbish. motel. The lay of the yeah. land was completely different. You, That's good direction. Good lord, Are you sure? You never. You never see the other way. Well, you mean they closed the tour for a few days to allow people? They didn't have the tour. It was nineteen sixty. No, for this version. I think they must have done. Yeah. It's quite a good bit of the tour actually. When you're driving past slowly on a little set of linked golf carts, uh, the narrator is telling you about about the horrible murders that took place there and then Norman Bates comes out of the house sharpening his knife sees you and starts <laughs> to walk towards you very slowly as though he's um, Jason Voorhees or something <laughs> it's really quite well he he, he really can't, can't get too thinking. close because otherwise you'll realise that it's not him <laughs> and no matter how hard you try to tell yourself that you're on a tour you're just thinking speed up speed up please he's coming <laughs> get moving I want to go and see the plastic shark again. <laughs> well, why do they build a frontage of this this house in front of the original to make it less gothic? Well, if anything, I thought it looked more gothic. Ah, it looked it looked more horror movie-ish. Right. I thought. I didn't do a side by side comparison. That was they they wanted it. They didn't want to have the same house, but they did want to use the the layout as it was because. That's kind of integral to the story, and it was all purpose-built in the first place anyway. So just put up a frontage and work around that, and then use the same um, motel set. So it's you know, a, a, a way of saving money, because this was quite an expensive film, hmm. weirdly. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to mention um, that earlier when you were talking about the, um, the car showroom. I was thinking, did the $60 million not stretch to building a mock-up car showroom that would be exactly the same layout as in the original so that you could keep the shots. And then I thought, well, okay, they had to rebuild the house and the motel, so maybe that's where the money went. Now you tell me they didn't do that either. I think production issues, cast... Um, I think they did have to build some new sets. Um, obviously, the um, the motel room at the start and the, um, the real estate office, I assume the insides of the... Uh, motel cabins and the parlour are all new the inside of the house I think is the same but I don't I don't know whether or not the inside of the Bates house is actually a real house on the inside if you go inside the house at Universal Backlot if there's actually anything in there unlike or if it's just an empty shell the other but yes I mean they've kept the layout the same but that's the bare minimum isn't it because it's the layout of the house is constructed to enable the drama to unfold. 
in the way that it has to. But even the the layout of the rooms downstairs, you know, you go in and the stairs are on the right, and then you go down the corridor and you turn right and you go into the kitchen. All that's the same. Hmm. And the layout upstairs is the same. I realised I was imagining certain other views and maybe even other rooms that I realise now aren't in Psycho. They must be from the sequels. <laughs> so I've got a map of a much broader map of the entire house in my head because I watched I watched too many of these films. As uh, Marion watches, Norman Bates runs out of the house and down to the uh, into the uh, motel office and introduces himself. Now, in the original, we had Anthony Perkins as this very youthful, boyish, nervous, awkward, but seemingly benign young man. Perfectly cast, I think. It's, it's impossible to imagine anyone else tackling that character as well. In the remake, we have Vince Vaughn, who immediately looks like a serial killer. <laughs> it's a fair comment. He has that, uh, an awkward false giggle. Um, he's, he has a very big build. Mm. Anthony Perkins was tall, but he was also very slight. Mm. Whereas Vaughn, is, he looks like a big guy. And he's, he's very tall. He's like something like six foot four. But he's quite beefy. And... It immediately creates a very strange impression, the juxtaposition of his physique and the, uh, frankly, the rather camp way um, air that he's adopted to play this, play it in. I wonder if one is supposed yeah. to cancel out the other one, or was that just his impression of, of the gaucheness of Anthony Perkins, which he, for some reason, translated into... He's, he's just a very strange fit. Um, I, I never really thought that he worked, and I think the fact that his his physical type is so different from the way the character operates, it, it's hard to imagine him being intimidated. That's the thing, that he is so completely controlled by his mother, but the way he's filmed and, the, and his physicality is such that he is someone who is in charge. He is a dominating power, a dominating force. Mm. I think when, with the um, TV series, they got the casting exactly right, because Freddie Highmore looks almost exactly like Anthony Perkins, but is a very talented actor and has a kind of a different, uh, different element to his own performance. And I've seen him in other stuff, and he's, he's quite a different personality. But he has that, the right physicality. He sort of feels like small and frail and, and childlike in a way that Perkins did, but not in a way that Vaughan did. He, just, he doesn't fit. I think that's the single biggest problem with this film, is <laughs> miscasting the one famous character that everyone can name. I think even though he's trying to play the lightness uh, and um, the softness of the, of the original Norman Bates, there's this, there's, this, there's this sort of seething rage inside him that you can see just below the surface. So when he finally does lose his temper with Marion, it's just rather startling in a way that it's not supposed to be. And you just think, why don't you run? Why? <laughs> this man, nothing good can come of this. Rather than feeling sorry for him, as you're supposed to. Um, Marion asks if uh, there's somewhere around there that she can get something to eat, and Norman says, though, there's a diner in Fairvale, 15 miles away. But she's welcome to have dinner with him instead, and 
it's just going to be sandwiches and milk. She invites them up to the house, but as she's settling into the hotel, she overhears a yelled argument between Norman and his mother, and his mother says some very horrible things and says that she's not welcome in the house, so Norman says, well, yeah, why don't we uh, eat in the parlour behind the office instead? It's very cosy. And they talk about their situations, and gradually the conversation moves into the idea of them both being in traps. Um, Particularly Marion suggesting as gently as she can, or maybe, you know, if if your mother's having all these problems, maybe you could put her someplace. And that pushes a button in Norman and his description of mental hospitals, effectively, uh, is very disturbing. And in the original, it feels like, oh, this is a boy talking about fear and talking about um, how he he's trying to keep his mother safe from somewhere that horrible. In this version, it sounds like Norman is talking from personal experience. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's room to do this story different ways of interpreting it in different contexts. But there are some things that you can't change too much without undermining the whole thing. It's like I said before about casting James Bond. I think you have to cast a straight white man as James Bond because if you go away from that you're changing too much of the basic nature of the character and you're making them into something else and if you want to tell that kind of story that's fine but James Bond is a specific thing Mm. Norman Bates is a specific thing he is the sweet gentle kindly mummy's boy who it turns out is also a serial killer which you could never possibly have guessed. And this film forgets that. Yep, because everybody involved in making it knows <laughs> that yeah, he's a serial that, killer, so you're starting from the wrong position. Yeah, it's, it's, it takes for granted the idea that the audience knows the twist. But if they know the twist, a lot of the audience is going to say, well, what's the point in watching the rest of the movie then? The reveal at the end of the film, spoiler, (laughs) that uh, Mother is dead and that Norman has been assuming her personality and killing people doesn't feel like as big a surprise it should be because Norman has felt like a murderer (laughs) from the first second we saw him. Whereas Anthony Perkins felt like this tragic... You you watch watch the original Psycho and you can only feel sorry for Norman. And even the the doctor at the end says that he feels great sympathy for Norman because he's this poor, innocent boy, completely dominated by his mother, who never really stood a chance. Because it's all in Perkins' performance and his physicality. It's an interesting sign, I think, that you can have the same script and similar direction, but if you have the personality of the performer and the physicality different enough... It gives a totally different interpretation and a totally different reading to the whole story. Marion goes back to her room and she decides to um, have a shower. But um, Norman watches through a peephole in the wall. Quite a big one. Um, yeah. Um, and the. I think. I tried checking. I can't remember whether or not it was right. But the painting that he moves 
that's covering up the peephole is the rape of Lucrece. Ah. Uh, I think it's it certainly is in the original. I think it is in the remake. And there's an addition here where in the original he's just watching her get undressed. In a very in the remake, very still in the it? remake he's masturbating he as is. well. Is it here, Gus finally decided that perhaps there's an avenue for him to put his own mark on this film, to add something. He spotted a lacuna in the original that he can correct. He spotted something that perhaps was too subtle, and he's worried the audience may not get it, so he's just going to give them a little nudge in the right direction. And so we get some rather disturbing sound effects and visuals to uh, hammer the point home, as it were. Well, you could say that, or you could argue that he's just trying to put put a little you know, something different in there. I mean... He, it's not shot for shot. We've already established that. So if he's not going to do it exactly the same, why not do a few differences here and there, a few different elements, these 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 sort of um, stream of consciousness cutaways to... What is it, like a, there's a, a road soaked in rain and, and uh, oh. passing clouds passing very yeah. quickly. These sort of mind's eye views. Um and that happens again later on. And I don't have a problem with that, really. Because you know, the original Psycho is still there. I think it's more it's that the... it's... I'm not uh, arguing on taste grounds. It's more that it's just a one-off. It's sort of... <laughs> it's been virtually unchanged for however long we've been going, 40 minutes. And then we get this. And then, again, it goes back to being... There's plenty of other places where he could have made it more, where he could have used this extra license that you get from this being 1998 rather than 1960, and he's reined that impulse in on every other occasion. So why just one? I think if there was more of it, then I'd be less bothered. It it does happen again. He does he does do these again at the murder of Arbogast. Oh yeah, we have again those cutaways. So this isn't the only occasion. Mm. But you know, to say it, that uh, it's been the same, it hasn't been the same. As we've established, there's a lot of differences, just that a lot of the, you know, the vast majority are so small and so subtle that they don't really notice. Yeah. Well, it's, just, it's Marian, the same thing. I mean, yeah. I'm not, it's the fact this, that it's, this it's is the, the fact first that, bit that it's really sticks order. out. Maybe it's deliberate. Maybe because he's not an idiot. <laughs> he must have known this one was going to stand out. So maybe that's deliberate to shock. I, I don't know. I mean, I I found it mildly laughable in 1998, and now I'm just slightly baffled. But um, I'll take on board that clever Jeremy thinks it's a good idea. I think that if you're going to show him, uh, well, <laughs> let's use the medical term, wanking. Um, I th- I think if you're going to do that, I think you can use different sound effects (laughs) I think there's a way of doing it that's less gross, I mean obviously it's supposed to be he's spying on a woman and and masturbating that is gross, but there's a way of doing it that's less obviously disgusting we don't need the slapping sound effect, we could just have like him, a close up of his eye looking through the hole and repeated heavy breathing, there's a way of doing it that's um, distasteful rather than (laughs) <laughs> but uh, before she gets in the shower Marianne also does a bit of um, back of the fag packet arithmetic because after their conversation and the talk of 
getting walking yourself into traps and trying to get yourself out of it, she's decided she's going to take the money back. But she's already spent some of it because of part exchanging the car. So having done this calculation on a piece of paper, she tears it up and throws it in the toilet. Uh, the money is wrapped in a newspaper. The newspaper is in her bag. And she gets in the shower. Um, to begin with, a different type of shower curtain. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's a patterned shower it's curtain. A... And the original, it was just translucent. It's one of your special subjects, is it? The history of shower curtains. <laughs> If you're going look, if you're going to have a remake of Psycho, the thing that people are going to focus on is how are the shower scenes. Different. Say that again. The original was. The original was just translucent. Yeah. Right. But this one is more patterned. I did think in the back of my mind I knew that I could see that, uh, or rather not see, <laughs> that the approach of um, Norman's mother is less is more blurred or more opaque. Do you think that's a deliberate choice to? But then again, the curtain gets ripped away at the last second, so it's not really necessary to... You can almost make out Mother's face as well. Um, I think you can see her eye quite clearly before the, the curtain is torn down, which I think gives a different tone to it because, again, the problem with having, um, and, uh, having Vince Vaughan <laughs> is that, again, he's a big, bulky guy. Anthony Perkins... Where do you think he got that from? It's genetic. He's got a... He's got a big, bulky mm. mother. But I, th- I think there's someone else playing mother in that scene. Mm. In the original, it was Anthony Perkins in the dress. Um, is this Vince Vaughn doing the voice? Because am I right in thinking that Anthony Perkins didn't do the voice for mother? It was... Anthony Perkins did not do the voice of mother. Mm. Um... I can't remember who did. Uh, it was it was a couple of different actors did the voice of mother at different points in the film, but they're all quite similar sounding. I think that was a deliberate choice right. to just wrong foot you. Um, now, the famous sequence of shots that make up the shower murder is, I assume, replicated pretty exactly, which isn't, it wasn't even famously Hitchcock's. It was designed by Saul Bass, wasn't it? Uh, well, supposedly it was storyboarded by Saul Bass, but it was... I think Hitchcock knew exactly what he wanted, but more likely is that he had shots listed and Saul Bass turned those into images. So he went from a, a like a, just a list of camera shots into a visual storyboard of what this was going to look like. Almost taking place the editor there, before you've actually shot anything. Pre, well, pre-visualisation, which now happens all the time with, um, with CGI. But uh, I checked, and there are more shots. There's a different sound mix. Um, we see Mother's face a bit more, mm. where it's in shadow but still visible, rather than being completely, almost completely blacked out in the original. And we have cutaways to clouds passing, and... Um, we even see wounds in Marion's body as she's stabbed. And in the original, of course, we never see we? the knife penetrate her I flesh. I watched this last night, and I would have sworn that we still didn't. Maybe that's because I'm too inured to these things. It's, yeah, it's well, that, we don't see... That, we that. don't. He does draw stop short of the, uh, any knife-penetrating flesh shots. So if we do see wounds, it would be after. They're not in the same shot as the knife, are they? No, but in the original, yeah. you never saw any... Quite. Any any wounds or knife going in? 
um, because that would have been um, unacceptable for the time. But it's also very Freudian because it's all you know, penetration, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of what you're about to say. Oh, go on. Well, well, let's find out. What, what, what are you going to say? At the end of this sequence, where they replicated the shots pretty closely, and certainly the intent, if not liter- the literal um, shot arrangement, Marion Crane falls dead over the side of the bar. And um, having been very careful to, be dis- to keep the same discretion that they were forced to have in 1960 about not showing anything <laughs> too much of her body, in this version you get a rather... I'm not quite sure how to put this. You see quite a lot of Anne Hesh's ass, which you don't see. Yes. Um, of Vivian Lee. Uh, Vivian Lee. Janet, Janet Lee. Lee. <laughs> which is interesting. Having that can't be an accident either. To because if you if you're not worried about how much you show of Anne Hesh, then you could have shot the the shower scene, the the, the bulk of the shower scene completely oh, well, differently. There's a big difference though to just showing. Uh, a, you know, a single shot of a motionless bottom. <laughs> I think that's that's one of the parts. That's one of the least offensive parts of the body, according to the. I NBA. didn't say I was offended. Of all of all the parts of the body that are covered up. Well, you know, if it was, um, if it was that inoffensive, Hitchcock should have shown it. You'd... Well, you couldn't do it in 1960, though. Right. But by 1998, that's not a big deal. She's quite splayed um, over the edge. I'm not saying <laughs> it's just an observation. I'm not saying I have a problem with it. I don't. I'm not saying it's tasteless in the same way that you could argue um, Vince's fapping earlier in the previous scene was. But it's please don't use the word fapping. <laughs> okay, sorry, is that fun? Really? Is that is that removing the dignity of the act for you? <laughs> it's well, it's not helping my dignity. This is meant to be a prestigious program. We don't use such language here. Sorry, we call it wanking. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't mean to draw a comparison to when Vince was tossing himself off. We have the, the shot pulling out of uh, Marion's iris. It's a swirling around shot. And uh, this time they were actually able to do it without um, freezing the image. On the original, they had to freeze the image because they couldn't, Janet Lee couldn't stay still enough. Mm. Uh, she couldn't keep her eyes still, but they were able to do it this time because you can actually see water dripping off her eyelashes. Uh, and we, we pan out of the bathroom we pan over to where the newspaper is the money completely untouched Norman knows nothing about it and then back over to the window where Norman cries out blood blood and runs down to the house with a, a music stab over the top so to speak and we, ha- we have the scene of Norman clearing up the crime scene covering up for his mother which is I think very closely replicating the original film um as he drives away with uh, Marion's body wrapped in a in the shower curtain and uh, her property in the back of the car, you can see Dawn coming up. And they tease you so many times with the money. Is he going to look at it? I feel it, it's just struck me. It's almost like a reverse MacGuffin, isn't it? We think it's going to be really important, and ultimately, it isn't. And therein no, I, lies I the lesson for us all. It works as a as a proper MacGuffin because it's a thing that drives the story, but having no inherent importance. No. Because Arbogast appears on the scene, hired by her old boss, because they're after the money. 
Because everyone thinks, oh, she's gone off with the money, or Bates has taken the money. No, Bates knew nothing about the money. The money's at the bottom of the swamp with, with all her other stuff. The money never had anything to do with it. And the great tragedy, I think, another tragedy of the story, as well as Norman being comprehensively destroyed by his mother, Marion had a change of heart. Mm. She was going to bring the money back and face the music and try and get her out of this trap. But before she can even tell anyone about it, she's horribly murdered. And no one will ever know that she was going to do the right thing. But here we are. The money goes down into the swamp. It's buried. It's out of sight. It's like that um, can of dinosaur embryos in Jurassic Park. You think is being set up for big things. But then the plot goes somewhere else. Yes, but by the time of uh, Psycho Dominion, <laughs> um, when they, they bring back the original cast as well as the new cast, the, the new owners of Bates Motel, um, I'm sure that uh, as <laughs> as Norman Bates is a running mock all over the world, having escaped from their island. Um, oh, don't! Oh, oh, it was bad. It was bad enough in 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 Psycho World when that giant Norman Bates jumped out of the sea and swallowed the babysitter, <laughs> or when the Norman Bates was standing on the dock as the uh, as they, all the other Norman Bateses were being engulfed by the volcano. Oh, that was very sad. Because, you see, that was the first Norman Bates they saw at the beginning of the first <laughs> film. The OG Norman. Yeah. Um, as the, the, uh, the car sort of goes into the, the swamp and it stops for a moment and you can see Norman looking worried, but then it just carries on sinking. These are the air bubbles dispersed. And Norman smiles. And it's a, it's a smile of malevolence. Mm. It, it should be a smile of relief. Oh, I've managed to cover up for Mother again. Oh, thank God. But instead, I got away with it. <laughs> Does Perkins give a smile of relief at this point? Yeah. Um, and then we we jump forward, and uh, Sam is in his office at the uh, hardware store, and he's writing a letter. And um, Lila comes in, having uh, tried tracking down her sister, and... <laughs> we get the most modern character in the whole movie, Julianne Moore's version of Lila mm. Crane. She looks modern, she acts modern. You think she's walked in off another film, maybe out of High Fidelity or something. She's, she's walked in out of a different Gus Van Sant film. <laughs> um, uh, Moore decided that she would play Lila in this film as a lesbian. Right. Um... For whatever reason, um, you know, why not? Um, that bit's a different complexion on the constant shots of her brushing off Viggo Mortensen's attentions, brushing his, getting arm off her shoulder. I thought that was just the sort of reaction anyone would have, but I didn't realise that was actually very unsubtle. <laughs> Every time she does yeah. that, she's saying, "I'm not into men." Well, I mean, there is a nice contrast there because these two characters would have nothing to do with each other normally. Because um, Sam is, you know, as I say, he's a he's a good old boy. He wears a cowboy hat, runs a hardware store. He's like a man's man type. Lila is from the big city. She works in a record store. She goes everywhere with her Walkman because it's 1998, <laughs> and she's also gay. So that the two of them are very different, and you can tell they don't really like each other. But they're both horror, you know, terrified of what might have happened to Marion. They both love Marion, and they want to find out what happened to her. 
So they have this this shared bond. And I think that makes an interesting mm. chemistry between the two of them. And they're both great actors. Um, they're both you know, giving quite contrasting performances, though, as you say, that Mortensen is a bit a bit mumbly, a bit too methody. And Moore's walked in off an indie movie. Oh, yes, I was very happy with it. And if that if the contrast is greater than it was in the original, then I think that actually could be counted as an improvement. I don't know. I can't remember it clearly enough. These in the original, it was there. There wasn't that kind of antagonism. Mm. Um, it was that they were two people with a shared goal. And in fact, in Psycho Two, it's revealed that they wound up getting married, and that Sam has in in, in the intervening years he's died. Yep. Um, but Paul. I can't imagine this Sam and this Lila. Poor Lila in Psycho 2. No spoilers. Poor Lila in Psycho 2. <laughs> I, mm, I don't think so. Poor, poor Norman in Psycho 2. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I can't imagine these two characters spending any more time together than they have to. But that makes it interesting because they have to spend time together. So I, I like her being a bit more, a bit, a bit more pushy, a bit more aggressive. Um, certainly taking the lead with with Arbogast because after a few moments of, of the two of them talking, suddenly there's a big close up of William H Macy. <laughs> it's like, so it's like bang, here he is. <laughs> And that's the same way that Martin Balsam is introduced in Psycho. There's suddenly a big close-up of him. And he walks in off the street and introduces himself and says that he's a private detective hired by Marion's former employer to track her down. And so, obviously, he's come to the business of the man that she's been seeing to find out that he doesn't know anything either. It's a nice little three-way, isn't it? They're just talking about the way it's written in the original script because they don't overplay the the, dis, the distrust and disbelief between the three. It works itself out quite nicely and believably. Mm. He has no reason to... Of course, he's going to be suspicious of both of these people and not not understand that they don't even trust... You know, they're not even on the same page anyway. But it, it works its way out and it doesn't overstay its welcome, that... Um, it's worth noting that the uh, the script is by Joseph Stefano. Um, this is his, I think his his one major, really famous screen credit. Although uh, Alma Ravel, Hitchcock's wife, also did some work on it. But the original novel is by Robert Bloch, who wrote several sequels to Psycho, um, none of which have been adapted. Um, I think it's in the second one where it's revealed that actually Norman died very early in the book and this, the person we thought was Norman was an impersonator. Oh, goodness. It's a, it's a very weird book. But They've sort of taken some hints from that for the third film, haven't they? But uh, transferred it to a different character. Well, anyway, mm. never mind. But the, the characterisation of Norman in the original book is almost completely different. Rather than being this um, slightly... Uh, effete uh, young man he's a gross slobby overweight middle aged man with horrible manners and really quite a disgusting human being right 
And I think that it makes it interesting that Stefano deliberately made him so much more sympathetic and so much more likable. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the same film at all, story at all, is it? If you if you don't, it's, it's much closer to every other uh, subsequent it's, um, psycho film. It, well, it makes me think of um, Maniac. The original version of Maniac, I think it's from 1980, where you have a, a really gross, disgusting um, uh, 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 d- unpleasant serial killer type who is also middle-aged, overweight, balding. He, he more obviously fits perhaps the real-life profile of a serial killer, that they are well, you know, all, these these people who are awkward and, and, and can't fit in with society and are in some way broken and, and can't interact with uh, in regular discourse, unlike Norman, who you know, you can have a regular conversation with Norman in the, you know, Anthony Perkins' Norman, and he's perfectly fine and pleasant and quite, quite nice and quite cheery. And which is closer to Ed Gain, Gein, who I believe was the inspiration, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but for uh, Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and various other um, diverse... And also um, um, sort of compositive bits of characters from Silence of the Lambs. Hmm. Um... Well, it sounds like the house from Texas Chainsaw Massacre was quite a lot like his actual house. Um, complete with, like, you know, lampshades made out of people. Okay. Um, that actually happened. That's that good. You, good to know. Yeah, it's stuff that you don't want to imagine. Um, Norman Bates is a very watered-down version of Ed yeah. Gein. And is that, would you say he is, even in the original... Robert Block version, not the Joseph Stefano reimagining. Well, in in the in the, uh, in the book, I mean, Ed Gein didn't go around. I mean, sorry, um, Norman Bates only digs up one body <laughs> and just preserves it and keeps it and doesn't oh, really do anything you, else. You I'm only dig up delicate. one body, and people never <clears throat> let you forget it, do they? Ed Gein did that a lot, <laughs> and he did a lot of things to dead bodies. Yep. And it's just awful. I mean, I'm trying to be circumspect for the sake of listeners who might potentially be triggered by this. But, um, yeah, even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's, it's so cartoonish, it's hard to take seriously. And then you read about it and you say, oh, right, so it was both real and worse than that horrible, bizarre, cartoonish movie I saw. So through an iterative process, we, we go from this appalling man who's worse than even his fictional uh, descendants. Counterparts, yeah. yeah. Arbogast starts canvassing hotels around the area and eventually turns up at the Bates Motel. And Norman's sitting outside eating candy corn like a small child. And Arbogast says, Oh, I barely, almost didn't see you. Seems almost like you're hiding away from the world. And they have a conversation about guests who may or may not have been by recently and holes rapidly emerge in Norman's story. He's a very bad liar because um, uh, Arbogast has a sample of Marion's handwriting. He compares that to the ledger 
And and despite Norman claiming, oh, no one's been by here for weeks, it's all oh, no, someone was here two weeks ago, and it matches the handwriting. Oh, yes, yeah, oh, yeah, she was here, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, Arbogast questions, you know, thinking about, oh, well, she stole, and da da da, da. Oh, oh, well, uh, she might have been able to fool me, but she wouldn't have been able to fool my mother. So Arbogast says, ah, so your mother met her. <laughs> oh well, if she, if your mother met her, then I'd like to talk to her. Oh 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 you oh you, you can't you can't you can't talk to her. She's she's very ill. She's an invalid, you know. Um, which immediately sets off Arbogast's spider sense. Think well, obviously he's hiding something. <laughs> he couldn't be more suspicious if he was wearing a neon jumper saying, "I am a murderer." <laughs> which, yes. Which his performance is essentially doing. Yeah. But uh, again, just Perkins' performance is so much more natural. And um, Arbog- Arbogast really is playing it. I mean, William H. Macy. William H. Macy is actually playing quite natural, but the characterization hasn't been adjusted from the original version. So he still feels like a 1960s private investigator with the smart smart shirt and the hat um, there's one change in the dialogue where Arbogast is saying about the story he says well as they used to say if it ain't gelling it ain't jello in the original film he says if it ain't gelling it ain't aspic because they couldn't get the rights to refer to jello by name good lord so Gus took the opportunity to fix that <laughs> I mean, by that point uh, the stock of jello was much lower <laughs> Due to its uh, association with hospital like food. Like the litigation. Arbogast talks to uh, Lila and Sam over the phone and says... Well, he says, uh, but it seems like his mother knows something, so I'm going to go back into the house and talk to them. Um, Arbogast sneaks into the house, and I think it's the other great scene in the movie of him very slowly creeping up the stairs to talk to Mother. When we cut to an overhead shot, Mother rushes out of the bedroom and stabs Arbogast at the top of the stairs. And we have that fantastic, quite fake-looking process shot of Arbogast stumbling backwards down the stairs with a streak of blood across his face and then falling to the ground at the bottom and being repeatedly stabbed again as we have more cutaways. That's... The extra stabbings at the bottom stairs they added from the original, or not? I don't remember. Being no, those are in there in the right. original. It's just the slash across the face, which is new. The slash across the face is in the original as well. It's actually quite faithfully reproduced. Oh, oh the, right. It's, apart, apart from the, that... we have the, those, those mind's eye cutaways mm. uh, are added of, of a masked woman and a cow. <laughs> yes. Just in case you've forgotten you're watching an art film, not a... Not a slash. Uh, it's that it's that cut from um, it's got cut to the overhead shot that I love because it doesn't really. It should tip you off that something's going to happen, but it it doesn't, does it? You don't really expect. That just looks like it's giving you a different perspective on his um, on his stealth investigation. You don't really expect something mm. to rush out of a door at top speed, and that's sort of that's one of my favourite horror tricks. That's a, it's almost like a it's not a jump scare, uh, but it's um. Sort of sudden burst of movement scare. Maybe it starts it's, here. 
I would say I would say it is a jump scare. I mean, um, I, I've spoken to my own mother about this film, and she said, uh, having seen Psycho in the cinema on its original release, it wasn't the shower scene; it was this <laughs> scene that really made the audience go berserk. Right. And as you say, they've recreated the slightly fake-looking um, method of of Arbogast falling down the stairs. I mean, what yeah. else could you do? I There's... mean, you can't. What can you replace it with? Some an actual stunt man cascading, you know, arse over. But, but you have to. But you have to see the actor's face. Yeah. Um, there's maybe a way of doing it with a a rig on the set, so he's actually being lowered down the stairs. But it, it, even so, it would still it wouldn't match the the actual movement you'd get from it happening for real. So it's. It's sort of fudged, but I thought, well, if we're going to fudge it, let's just do what they did in the original, but just cleaner. Yeah. So you can't see the matte lines around the edge. Yeah. Sort of Sam and Lila are still waiting, and they wind up going to the motel to search. Um, and they have a look around. They call they call Arbogast's name, and Norman hears them as he's standing by the lake, having clearly just pushed Arbogast's car in with all the others. And he slowly turns round to look at the noise. Um, Sam and Lila go and see the local deputy. Um, at which, at which point we get the best new line of the film. Oh, let me get my Walkman. <laughs> um, Lila's very pushy about um, you know, getting something done and going and investigating properly. And at one point, Sam puts his arm around her and she glares at him. Um, but the deputy, played by Philip Baker Hall, says, you know, we, well, we can't question his mother. I don't, don't know what you're talking about. Norman's mother's been dead for ten years. And he explains that there was a, a murder-suicide, that um, Norman's mother got involved with another man and they both wind up dead. Um, but... They said, well, Arbogast said there was a, he saw a woman in the house. So if there's a woman in the house, who's in the graveyard? Now, this is a great plot point because it's a twist. It undercuts, undermines, overturns everything you've thought you knew about the story so far. But it's not a reveal because it's a, also a feint. It's also misleading. You're, you're encouraged to think, who's this, who's this new woman? Who's taken the place? Because you're still thinking that the, the mother is the killer. I oh, know you're not. Sorry, you're still. Think whoever we've been told is mother. Yes. Or whoever this other woman is, she's the so mother. What's, yeah. What's her angle? Great suspense plotting. I think like this, it's it's like a magic trick. And this is the this is the turn. I think this is the point where you're being pointed towards something. That says, ah, this is how. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to show you. And it's necessary because... But actually it's something totally different. It's a very vague off chance that anybody in the audience might think, oh, well, if, if his mother's dead, then clearly <laughs> that's a corpse <laughs> in the house. This is supposed to throw you off the scent of that, isn't it? So that the final reveal will surprise 100% of the audience, not just most of them. So Lila and Sam, the following day, go to the hotel and book a room as a couple... They, uh, 
assume that Norman has taken the money, that, that all of this still is, is motivated by the money. Again, it's almost that the, the subtext is the horror of what really happened is so far beyond what anyone would guess. They think, oh, it's going to be about greed. Oh, it's going to be about vanity. No, it's it's so much more complex than that. It's so much stranger. Um, they go into the cabin number one and they they search it and they find a scrap of paper in the toilet. The original Psycho, of course, was the first film to show a toilet being flushed on screen. <laughs> Ten years later, in 1970, Martin Balsam was also in the first film to show someone using a toilet on screen. And it was him. <laughs> oh, there you are. In, uh, Catch, in Catch 22. Ah. His character is introduced conducting a meeting while using the toilet. Um, because it's that kind of film. Um, but they find the scrap of paper saying uh, $400,000. Yeah, it's a good job it was that square, so wasn't it? it? Rather than any of the others. But well, Yeah. <laughs> I'll, think, well, I'll that, let them off. That, that, that proves that Marion must have been in the room at some point and someone tried to destroy the evidence. Um, Lila goes up to the house as Sam is talking to Norman in the, uh, in the office to keep him busy. And the, again, the problem here is that Sam is supposed to be you know, the, the intimidating one. And in the original film, you have John Gavin, who's quite a big man, talking to a little tiny... Well, not tiny, because he was fairly tall, but very slight Anthony Perkins... Here you've got Vince Vaughn towering over Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> and it, it doesn't it doesn't fit. You know, you know, with, with the best There's, will in the world, the, the, physic, the physicality they're is still, still playing it as if it's as if that's not the case, aren't they? They're just trying to it's ignore it. It's a personality it. thing because because Sam is quite a forceful, mm. macho type, uh, whereas Norman is supposed to be much more cow cowed. Um, but um, Lila looks around the house she goes into Norman's mother's room and finds the wardrobe full of all the clothes finds the weird little sculpture of the hands intertwined on her desk she she thinks she sees something in the corner of her eye but it's her own reflection in the mirror uh, across yeah. the room and there's also and the creepiest thing of all there is a person shaped dent mm. in the bedclothes all of this is from the original, isn't it? I mean, yeah, including pr- pretty much shot for now, shot because they they yeah. make this scene. I think this scene is improved. It's scarier and more tense than the original, and that's mostly because they've added a layer of sound effects um, on, haven't they? Sort of harking back that non-diegetic. They're not even in in Marion's head. They are just telling us, giving us snippets of things that have happened in this room in bygone years. Are they not? I didn't dream that. The... I don't recall. I, I don't. It's not in my notes, but I'm happy to take it as I read. Wonder, I was wondering why you hadn't mentioned the sound effects, because it's one of the major things that, unless I watched a very odd copy of this film, it's one of the main things that's changed, that's been added to the oh. original. Um, when I first noticed it, I think there was something. It was quite subtle, and I wasn't sure if I'd imagined it. I think there were bird noises in the first meeting between Marin and Norman in his office. 
Yes, because he has the stuffed birds in his in the parlour. But then later on, sound effects start to come in that are less strictly tied to what we're seeing and, and seem much more to be just there for atmosphere. That's interesting. It's, it's an interesting use of sound design to just use noises to create mood. There are times when... That aren't th- there are times when they mix in with the music and even and you know times compete with the dialogue. So it's an interesting mix. And as they as it starts to become more and more, well, I'll bring it up again later because I'm I'm fairly sure it happened in this scene. But I'm I'm losing my nerve because you said you didn't notice it. But um, there are definitely fra- I'm sure there are fragments of conversation between. Well, the next bit I've written is that Lila goes into Norman's room, and. In there, there's the sound of children's laughter. Oh, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. I probably didn't. I probably got the wrong scene. And she looks through some of his stuff, and in the original, she finds a hardback leather-bound book with no title on. And she opens it and looks inside and is shocked by what she sees. And we are never told what that is. It's left... As I say, it's 1960. There's limits on what they can do and and show in movies in, in Hollywood. But here... So, nope, he's got porn... We're just going to flat out tell you it's porn. I think it's so much more effective when you don't know. Like we we know that this, we know it's illicit. We know it's something that's shocking. It I mean doesn't it wouldn't even necessarily be pornography. It could be pictures of dead bodies or something aberrant and abhorrent. Aberrant. Abhorrent. Yeah, that too. Oh, I'm going to have to go and look. I'm going to have to go off and look how that word is pronounced because I may have been saying it wrong all my life. Or maybe I've never said it out loud. Well, whatever it is, it's the epitome of deviation. (laughs) See what you did there. Um, Norman is able to get the upper hand over Sam and and knocks him out. Uh, Runs up to the house as Lila hides under the stairs and goes into the cellar. And the cellar is totally different it's this ridiculously gothic space <laughs> we've got birds in in yeah. in huge cages um uh it's this huge room in the original it's just like a normal cellar and lila creeps through into a second room where there is a woman sitting in a chair facing away from her clearly mrs bates lila reaches the chair turns it around and it is of course the preserved dead body of Mrs. Bates, with the added extra of a spider crawling all over her face. Yep, no, good touch. Just in case you don't find preserved corpses frightening, hmm. spiders. Yeah, got to go for the arachnophobe market as well. Um, Norman bursts in, dressed in his mother's clothes, wielding a knife, lunges at Lila, but at the last, uh, but, but, but. Um, in the original, Lila uh, is unable to do anything and, and uh, Sam grabs Norman from behind, but Lila actually fights back in this mm. one. Again, it's making her this more aggressive, more assertive character. And give her a bit more agency. Wow. Exactly. Uh, and the two of them, between yeah. them, manage to subdue I Norman. She gives him one last kick in the face, doesn't she? Just to, uh, yeah. Oh, we, but everything and, else is... Um, there's one other, you know, big Hitchcockian touch which is preserved. The the she knocks into the lights. Did you, oh, did you mention that? 
which swings oh, and, the, and casts shadows into the, the empty eye sockets of, of Mother. That's everyone's favourite. Yeah, bit. that's a lovely. That's a lovely move. Um, and then we fade through to the the final scene at the police station. Now, this is the one scene I would say from the original that I would quite heavily cut. <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised if it hadn't been. Oh, had been. I, sorry. I, <laughs> I would I would remove almost all of it. Yeah. Because it's a bit of a I think joke, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think it it it's it's filling in the gap for the audience that again, they can't comprehend something this warped. And it, they have yeah. to have it explained to and them. And in nineteen sixty you've never seen or heard of any of these concepts before, have you? So you kind of need your hand holding while you're guided through it. Now yeah. and and in and in the uh, in the nineteen ninety eight version the, the the psychiatrist's speech is quite heavily cut down hmm. to just avoid saying right. stuff that the audience would be able to grasp quite easily. I, and it's, as I say, it's Robert Forster. I thought it felt less painful. But they've they've cut it down. They've given it to a charismatic actor rather than, no offence to whoever did it originally, but it was rather, here comes the bland authority figure to, to explain everything. Now we've got somebody decent. And also... Layered it with music, more sound effects, haven't they? They've done everything to try to to keep Simon your attention. Simon Oakland in the original. Simon Oakland in the original, who I oh, I thought was rather good, uh, and it's because it's a very static scene of him just delivering this monologue, and he's trying to keep it visual and and have a lot of right. movement in his performance. Um, but he explains that with Norman and his mother living out in the sticks alone. Um. Yeah, they developed a very close bond that was all that was, you know, beyond that that, that uh, a mother and son should really have. So when this man comes along, that uh, the mother falls in love with, Norman couldn't cope with the jealousy and killed them both. But his guilt was such that he tried to erase the crime by being mother and bringing her back to life. Um, so whenever that kind of jealousy threatened their cosy little existence, Mother would come out to enact the same kind of violence that Norman had because he assumed that their relationship was reciprocal. So Mother would come out and, and murder any woman for whom Norman had a desire, like Marion. So it was Mother who killed her, not Norman. Norman has an innocent party in all this. Um... At which point a cop puts his head through the door saying, oh, she, he says he's cold. Can I bring him a blanket? I say, oh, yes, yes, that's fine. And the cop goes into the cell at the end of the corridor and we don't see, but uh, actually, no, we, we do, don't we? Because we see from Norman's point of view or, well, I should say from Mother's point of view. The cop handing her the blanket and saying, oh, thank you. And then they have the final shot, as in the original film, of Norman sitting quietly and thinking to himself in Mother's voice how, well, it's terrible having to rat out your own son like that, but, oh, he was always bad. But uh, I'll just sit here quietly and they'll know it couldn't possibly have been me. And then we see the little fly walking across her hands. Yeah, I'm not even going to swap that fly. They'll know. They'll, they'll see that, you know, I'm, I'm so harmless I couldn't even harm a fly. Just as Norman looks up at the audience and, and smiles. And then we get the horribly gratuitous fade briefly, imperceptibly, through to um, Mother's 
mummified face, and then on to the which isn't which, which is in the original. Yeah, absolutely. And then the actual <laughs> final shot of Marion's car being pulled through from the swamp. And in the original film, then it just goes to to black um, with a with a, the end caption. There's no end credits at all. Uh, but we get a full set of end credits now, with a sort of a, a Fantasia on the Psycho theme, very um, Psycho Billy ambient, um, as the camera pulls up uh, over the uh, the police operation and uh, looking over the the swamps of southeastern California. Mm. It's an interesting experiment, I think. Um, it. I th- and I think it works more often than it doesn't. But it's it's quite deeply flawed, I think. Do you mean fundamentally flawed or just in moments, in the execution? You're in in moments. Thing, I think the, things you've already the concept is sound of, of doing a, a cover version or a remix or a, a, a touring production <laughs> of Psycho. I think that's an absolutely solid concept. I think it's the specific execution of certain elements that don't work and do bring it down a bit. The tentativeness about how much to update, as you say, leaves different people, both on the screen and behind the camera, um, d- taking different approaches, which makes the whole thing slightly less cohesive and less effective than it could have been if they'd gone all out for one particular approach. It need- it needed a, a single coherent aesthetic, as I say. Like, yeah, like feudal Japan or the Wild West. That's going to have a, a simple concept uniting everything. This, people weren't sure which what it was going for. Is it going to be a period movie? Is it a present day movie? Is it, you know, what, what are we aiming at? And in, I think it might show off Gus Van Sant's um, inexperience at a a project like this that he doesn't know how to marshal everything in one direction he he does seem to be a lot happier with more minimalist experimental films I mean, one of his well, one of his previous ones one of the previous episodes of cinema limbo we covered uh, jerry his 2003 film which has um two actors neither of whom are named um, minimal dialogue and long scenes of nothing happening. It's a very tight focused film because there's almost nothing extraneous you can do with it. But with Psycho, there is so much you can do with it and it's not all going into one lane. It's too spread out. Well, it's been nice revisiting it after this remove because if you hadn't asked me to, I probably never would have watched it again because any time I feel like watching Psycho, I'm... <laughs> I mean, you're going to watch the originals. So, I mean, maybe this will be the second and last time. But it was not a wasted one hour forty three minutes. I noticed it's five minutes shorter than the original. So, um, there must have been a few, <laughs> as languid as it felt, there must have been a few um, little cuts to tighten up along the way, which all added up. The final scene, and also someone I saw suggested, people just talk faster now. Well. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, I I would certainly recommend watching it with a with an eye towards comparison. I think it's it's a 
As an experiment, it's a valid one. As a project on its own merits, it doesn't quite work. But it, I would rather have had this, flawed as it is, than something like the remake of The Hitcher or the remake of The Fog. Because those movies are crap. They don't have any understanding of why the original works. No. This understands why the original works, and it's trying to do something different with it and look at it in an interesting way. It's trying. And a lot of the time, trying can be enough. Thanks to Paul for making time for this recording. His latest audio drama, The Prince of Denmark was released earlier in 2022 as part of Doctor Who The Companion Chronicles, The Second Doctor, Volume 3, and is available from bigfinish.com and anywhere that fine audio drama is sold. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, with over 100 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have years ago. He was always bad, and in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Oh, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of person I am. I'm not even going to swap that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why? She wouldn't even harm a fly. Listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.